Well, good morning. I'm very uh, thankful to be able to come and open the Word of God with you guys today. In the youth and college ministries, over the last, I don't know how many months, we've been looking at the, the letter of First Peter. And uh, some of the things that we have talked about, some of the things that uh, I've learned through this study have, have changed the way I think, changed the way I live, uh, helped me to see much more clearly the, the wonderful, gracious hand of God, even as we walk through circumstances in life where we don't know uh, the outcome. And so I pray today that this will be a blessing for all of us as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ. As we look at this topic the, of trials, we're going to call this the joy of trials. We're going to be looking at First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 today, and really emphasizing the first two verses. But it's hard to, you know, have one sermon and dive right in the middle of a letter or a book, you know, without having the, the background. So I'm going to really quickly try to get you guys in the place that we are on Wednesday and Thursday nights where you, you know what Peter is writing about, who he's writing to, and all of those things. So here's what's going on. Peter is writing a letter to Christians who have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Most likely, these were Roman Christians from Rome uh, and were sent there, we think, historically, probably because of the Emperor Claudius. He was the one that would colonize these regions historically. Uh, He was very big into Romanizing the rest of the world. And during his reign, which is right when this letter was written, he was actually the one in charge of uh, colonizing this region of Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and all of those places for Rome. So maybe, maybe these were former church members that Peter would have known. You know, he would have known their name. He would have known them personally. Uh, and, uh, and, and these could have been people that, that he knew. They've been forced now out of their country by the government, leaving their jobs, their families, their property, their inheritance, and their church to be pilgrims or colonists and aliens in a foreign land. So being in this place and romanizing these, these new regions, uh, they, they would not have been welcomed, most likely. Uh, first thing, because people probably didn't want outsiders coming in, uh, trying to change the culture that they had grown up in, that they lived in. But furthermore, the recipients of this letter were Christians. And like all Christians, they were chosen specifically by God and placed on this earth to do his good work. They were set apart as a holy group. He'll tell them that very soon. They're distinct from any culture, no matter where they are, even if they stayed in Rome. They're royal priests sent from the king of kings to preserve and speak the authoritative word of God wherever they live. They were God's prized servants, and they were striving to live their lives in submissive obedience to him and to his will and his word. So, the people that understood this letter would have understood very clearly, not only were they not welcomed by the culture that they had been now placed into, but no matter where they were on the earth, they would be distinct and different than the people around them where they lived. And we know that they are receiving ridicule and they're being mocked, they're being insulted because Peter says that over and over in the letter. It's probably because, like I said first, they, they are be, they're colonists, sent into this new place, but also because of the way they live, the way they speak, the way they think, which would be very opposite of the culture that they live in. So they're probably being persecuted for their role there, their ethnicity, their beliefs, and they're also feeling an increasing opposition from their own culture, 
which would soon erupt into one of the strongest and most gruesome persecutions of the early church under the emperor Nero. This is just years away. There was no social justice for these Christians. There was no racial justice for these Christians. There was no economic justice for these Christians. No religious justice for these Christians. They were living in a very unjust time, in a very unrighteous time. And Peter writes this letter to his persecuted friends, his persecuted brethren, the church that he loves, encouraging them to rejoice. That is the message of the letter. Rejoice where you are at. Rejoice in the circumstances the Lord has let you be in in this life. I always tell the, the college kids, I would, I would say this different. You know, if, if I knew they were out in, in, you know, they were at college somewhere off away from me and then and I found out that they were, you know, uh, in a really hard time and being mocked and insulted for their faith or something like that, I imagine my first response would be, I am so sorry, brother. I'll be praying for you. I can't imagine what you're walking through. That would be very difficult being in that situation. And, 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 and just know that I'm praying for you and I'm very sorry that you are there. Probably something like that. And it's not to say that those are bad words, but that's just not what Peter does here. He does something completely different. Moved by the spirit of God, speaking perfect truth and wisdom and comfort to his brethren, he tells them to rejoice. And he reminds them that our father in heaven knows our suffering. He knows all of his children. He forsakes none of his children. He loses none of his children. He overlooks none of his children. And nothing will ever separate him uh, uh, or his love uh, from his children. And he's actually using all circumstances and he orchestrates it all to work for their good, for their sanctification, for their Christ-likeness, and in the end, for the glory of his own son, Jesus Christ. This is what Peter says over and over and over. And that's what we gotta remind ourselves. Our father takes the effects of sin and evil and injustice and persecution and suffering and temptation and trials and tests and sickness and pain in this life. And he maneuvers them in the lives of his children and uses them to glorify them when his son is revealed and ultimately for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. So Peter tells his suffering brethren in this letter to rejoice with great joy, overabounding joy in their trials, a joy that comes from knowing this, that their holy father has chosen them to be exactly where they are at and he is working through their suffering purposely for their sanctification so that they can obey Jesus Christ and receive honor and glory and praise and salvation at his return. And while they are suffering, they're to worship him. And while they're suffering, they are to recall all that he has done. And while they're suffering, they are to remember the things that they know that he has told them. Peter's already reminded them before the the verses we're going to read today that they've been born again in Jesus Christ. He reminds them that their bodies will rise from the dead physically in the same way that their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They will conquer sin and death. He reminds them of the promised eternal inheritance that awaits them when they see him face to face. An eternal inheritance that cannot be touched by anyone or anything in this world that's reserved for them by their father with their name already written on it. No matter what you lose on earth, 
That is the future for all of us. And he reminds them that even now, currently, as they suffer, that they are being protected for this salvation that is ready to be revealed when Christ returns. That is, is, is all that's going on in their lives. And those are the things that await them when Jesus Christ rips the heavens apart and returns with all of his glory and fury. And that's what he tells them. That's what this letter is about, rejoicing. And, and the purpose of the letter is for them to stand firm. He tells them, stand firm. In 1 Peter five twelve, he says, I have written to you briefly, and this is a brief, short letter, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. They needed to hear it. They needed to read it. And we need to read it because we easily forget all that we have in Christ, all that he's doing, and that all the things around us that oftentimes we pray away or wish were over are the very things that the Lord has put into our life or left in our life so that we become more like him, so that we can stand firm, so that he will be glorified, so that we will be transformed and glorified together with him and made into the image of Christ. So today we're going to briefly look at how to stand firm and rejoice in suffering in this life. We all suffer. We all suffer. And we will suffer more. The longer you live on earth, the more you will suffer. And we suffer together as the body of Christ. We are a family and we suffer together as our Savior suffers with us. Only a fool, an arrogant fool, is foolish enough to think that he is the only person suffering. But that foolishness has come into all of our minds, right? Oftentimes we think, well, no one knows what I'm going through. Well, first, Christ fully does, even better than you, and the rest of us are probably walking through something similar, just different circumstances. Suffering is a part of this present age. It's a part of this present age because sin is a part of this present age. But here is what we know. Suffering will end, but not today, right? And so, while today is called today, we have to focus our mind on things above and rejoice in the wonderful work of our Father and know what he, that he is accomplishing in our life through suffering, through tests, and through trials that we face. So let's read 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 6 through 9 together. We'll ask the Lord to help us to, to understand these words, and then we will dive in. Actually, let's start with verse 1, and that just gives us the context. So Peter says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that, here's the purpose, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, 
you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Pray with me. Father, we know that we need your spirit to understand your truth, and we know that you put your spirit within the hearts of all of your children so that we can discern the words and the will and the mind of Christ so that we can be convicted by your truth and and repent of our sins so that our minds can be changed and that our thoughts will become your thoughts and our ways your ways and we'll see the things that we misunderstand, the parts about you that we don't understand and understand even more the greatness of all you do in us. But that is something that we are dependent upon you for. So Father, I pray, please forgive us of our sins. Help us to strive to come before you now with a clear heart and a clear mind and to let your word wash over us and do whatever it is that you desire to change in our lives so that we become more like Christ. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. Today we're going to look at the the joy of trials. We're going to do this in three parts. The first part is we're going to look at the nature of trials, and then we're going to look at the purpose of trials, and then finally we're going to rejoice in the fact that we walk through trials and suffering in this life. So the first thing you see in verse 6 is, is Peter describes the, the nature of trials, and it's good to look at this and to understand what trials are like because sometimes we misunderstand them or we just uh, uh, don't uh, understand what the Lord is doing. So he says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. The first thing that we see here, and we know about trials, is that trials are inevitable. He says, even though now, they're inevitable now. They're inevitable in this life that we live. Trials, suffering, persecution, temptation, these are things that are unavoidable and inescapable. They're components of living in a sinful world and... Being a Christian actually drastically escalates the amount of trials and persecution you will face. Our Lord and God and Savior told us this when he became a man like one of us and was on this earth. Jesus himself says in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So he warned his disciples. He told them what was coming. He says in Matthew 10, in the same context, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, so think about that. God himself shows up. He does all things with perfection, right? Perfect love, perfect mercy, perfect gentleness, perfect grace, perfect wisdom, Total perfection. He was perfect man, perfect God. And they called him satanic. They said, this guy is inspired by and driven by and controlled by Satan. So if that's what the world sees in our perfect God, what do you think they're going to see in you? He says, if they call me Beelzebul, um, and uh, he says, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And think about this. They got stuff on you, right? And they got stuff on me because we are not perfectly holy and perfectly gentle and perfectly loving and perfectly kind. We don't speak perfect truth. We do get impatient. We have sin in our lives. So they can easily label anyone in here a a hypocrite 
And they could probably find evidence to prove it, right? But if they maligned him, you know they're going to malign you. And if he suffered, you know that we're going to suffer because the world that we live in. But Peter says, secondly, the trials are temporary. He says, rejoice even though now for a little while. Look, this is not forever. Trials are just a little while. There is an end to trials. And you can read about it in Revelation 21. There is coming a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth will pass away. And he, Jesus Christ, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or any crying or any pain because the first things have passed away. There is an end to trials. Your trials, whatever trial it is, may end this week. It may end in a month. And it may end when you die. But it will end, right? And all trials and all suffering will end ultimately because Jesus will return and end sin and death. And there will be no more suffering. There will be no more trials. Trials are for now. And they are for a little while. Peter knew this. The greatness and the glory of our salvation overweighs and, uh, overshadows and outweighs our present suffering. In Romans 8.18, he said, he considered the sufferings of this present time. And you know, if you've read anything about Paul, I think I said Peter, Paul, that Paul suffered greatly, right? More than any of us ever will. Maybe more than we do combined. And Paul says that his present sufferings were not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So either he's speaking in hyperbole, he's exaggerating, or he trusted Christ and knew, he knew what his father was doing. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, he calls his, his suffering momentary light affliction. This momentary light affliction, he says, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So whatever it is, these momentary light temporary trials are producing something in you that your father knows that you need. And one day you will rejoice in with his son as you are made perfect like his son. Third, trials are necessary. He says, for now, a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed. All trials have a precise purpose. And the Bible actually clearly defines that purpose. But we'll get back to that very soon. Fourthly, trials are distressing. He says, you've been distressed by various trials. They are distressing. Do not belittle them. It's not like uh, our joy comes from just acting like they're not there or ignoring our trials. Trials are painful. They are agonizing. They are perplexing. They're troubling to us. They're sorrowful and they're hard. When we talk about joy in trials, we are not talking about some arrogant, apathetic stoicism where we just act like nothing bothers us. And we're also not talking about an ignorant, insincere bliss that we just have joy and try to act like nothing wrong is going on. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a resolute joy that is dependent upon the wonderful grace, mercy, and love of our Father. It's a joy that comes because we know his character and we know what he's doing. And we trust him more than we trust our own thinking. And we trust him more than we trust the, the, the circumstances around us. That is where our joy comes from. Being distressed is not necessarily sin. And being grieved is not necessarily sin. And being perplexed is not necessarily sin. Our Savior was grieved 
and sorrowful, sorrowful and distressed. And in Gethsemane, Jesus says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And he was sweating blood. His body was breaking down because of the trial that he was about to face. Being distressed by trials and suffering is not sin. In Matthew 18, you see true believers that are grieved and sorrowful when fellow professing believers refuse to be merciful, refuse to be kind, refuse to love and forgive one another. And it causes sorrow and distress in the hearts of the rest of us. And you know that, you've felt that before. When you know a fellow believer is withholding forgiveness or mercy to someone else that you love. And that grieves you. And it grieves me enough to go to that person and to talk to them and to say, you've got to forgive. Do you know what you've been forgiven? And it should grieve you when you're the one withholding the mercy and the forgiveness. And in John 16, you see the disciples distressed. They, dis- they were distressed when Jesus told them that he was about to die. He doesn't rebuke them for being re- distressed. He retrains their mind to see that what he is about to do is perfect and good and for their good. But they were perplexed by it. It was hard to understand. Trials are distressing. And fifthly, trials are diverse. He says you'll go through various trials. Trials don't come the same way every time. They, would, they wouldn't be trials, right? We would get it the first, second, third, or for me, like the 15th or 20th time I went through it. And then we'd kind of be prepared for it. But trials come in different ways. Many forms, many shapes, many circumstances. And they're going to change as you continue to walk in life. You got mental trials, you got physical trials, you got spiritual trials. You got trials of gain, right? Where we receive things we really didn't want to have. And we have trials of loss where we lose things and lose people we really didn't want to lose. We have short trials and we have long trials. We have hard trials and we have harder trials. We have trials because of the consequences of our own sin. And we have trials because of the effects of other people's sinful decisions that affect us. We have trials simply because we live in a sinful, broken, and dying world. And it may not necessarily be because you sinned or they sinned, but just because there is sin. Some things are trials because we don't know how they're going to end. And other things are trials because we know exactly how this is going to end. But all the trials have one thing in common. All trials have a precise purpose. All trials have a precise purpose. And here is the purpose of trials. Look at verse 7. So that is a purpose statement. Here, Peter is telling them, here's exactly why you're suffering. You want to know why you suffer? You want to know why you're walking through trials? Here it is. You are walking through these trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is imperishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says that trials prove our faith. That's the purpose of trials. That is why you're suffering. That is why you are perplexed. And that is why you are in a place of, 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 of being distressed. Because if you are a child of God, these trials are meant for your good. And they're meant to prove your faith. It's a proven genuineness of our faith. A proven authenticity. A proven legitimacy. That what you actually are is what you say that you are. It's a proven validity. It proves the truthfulness of our faith. Now, I think we need to think about this in two ways. Two ways. And sometimes I, over, I, I, I overemphasize one 
uh, and, and almost underemphasize the other, but they're both very important. Uh, the first thing is there is a testing of the authenticity of our faith to prove whether or not it is true God granted life saving faith as opposed to the dead, deranged, demonic faith that James talks about, or the hypocritical false professions you read about over and over in 1 John, or the things that Jesus said of the Pharisees who professed to know God, professed to love him, but then were trying to murder his son. So there is that, in that sense, a testing of our faith to prove whether or not what we say and what we think we are is truly what we are. And, And we get that. I feel, like, I feel like all the time I'm, I'm struggling with that. I mean, I see my discrepancies. I know my sin. I know my mind better than you ever will. And I know just how horrible I am. And that causes me over and over to repent, to run back to him, to ask him, please forgive me. And, and those are ex- examinations. Those are tests of our faith. And, and, and we do need to examine. We do need a test. We do need to judge spiritual fruit, character, words, and deeds. uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, right? Examine yourselves, he says. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. So that is very legitimate. Test yourself, examine yourself. Are you truly in the faith? That is one of the purposes of trials because how we react, how we think, how we speak, how we uh, uh, walk through those trials reveals something about our character, So that's a good thing. But there is another aspect of proven faith that we cannot forget. And this is something the Lord just struck me with as I was studying this and as we talked about this. I believe in understanding this, there is great comfort and great joy and that is the purpose of what Peter is writing this letter for. If you read on in 2 Corinthians 13, the very next verse, after he says to test yourself and examine yourself, he says this, but I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail this test. In other words, Paul was saying this. He's saying, examine yourself, test yourself, and I hope you realize that you are this true born-again believer, that you do have true faith. He says, because I do. He knew he did. He knew what he was in Christ. And we need to know that as well about ourselves. Because if we are in Christ, then trials and troubles and tests, this examination, these become joyful, joyful, wonderful endeavors in our life. In James 1, 2 through 4, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing what? What do they know? They know that the testing of their faith produces endurance. So so what do we do with endurance? He says, and let endurance have its perfect result. Let it continue to play out. Let your patience, your perseverance, your endurance play out to the very end. And then he gives the purpose statement. So that, here's the reason, you rejoice in trials, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, he's saying that you'll be like Christ. And then in 1 Peter, look at the end of this verse we're looking at. He says, so that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So James and Peter say that the testing of your faith, James says the testing of your faith leads to Christ-likeness. That's a reason to rejoice. And Peter says the proof of your faith leads to your praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ together with the Son of God. And that ought to be something to rejoice in. God knows. Listen to this. This is important. This is what I think I forget sometimes. Our faith is dependent on him, right? On our Father. And God knows the faith that exists within each of his children perfectly. God knows 
because it is a faith that he has ordained and it is a faith that he has caused and it is a faith that he has produced and that he has placed within us and that he purifies and he completes. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that is wonderful. The existence and the completion of our faith is dependent on our Father's sovereign, loving will. And our Father knows exactly what will purify us and make us into the image of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He knows exactly what will assay our faith until it is perfect, holy, and complete. And he knows that the fires of the trials that we walk through as children of God are the very things that burn away the dross and burn away the discrepancies and burn away the impurities and burn away the contamination and burn away the distractions and burn away the worldliness and the immaturity and the ignorance and the sin that remains in all of our lives. We rest in the hands of a father that knows us and loves us. This is what Paul says to the Philippians. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, your entire life will be a trial of perfection until you're face to face with your savior. And there's confidence in that. What an amazing father we have. Think about this. Our father knows each of his children and our father knows each of our names and our father knows our nature and character and our father knows what we will be when we are complete. You don't know that and I don't know that. Even you who know yourself better than anybody in this room still do not understand what you are in Jesus Christ. You don't understand what you are glorified. You don't understand what your new name is. You don't understand the promises that he has given to all of his children that he does, he knows, and one day you'll see and experience when you see him face to face. He knows everything that is keeping us from being exactly what he has predestined us to be. So he will assay our faith in this life through trials to reveal what we are in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Currently, The proof is for us. We need this proof. We doubt ourselves. We see our hypocrisy. We know our sinful thoughts. And we need trials so that it will prove to us ourselves that he reigns within my heart, that he controls me, and that my faith is true and real. We need that, right? So currently, we need these things for ourselves. But eternally, eternally is so much greater than that. Eternally, he is proving our faith to prove his power, to prove his sovereignty, to prove his majesty, to prove his love, to prove his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy, and to prove his own word. Because he says in his word that he will perfect each of us until we are complete. He says in his word that he will make us into the image of Christ, and he will glorify us together with his son, and that we are brethren of Jesus Christ himself. Our proven faith will also prove that the precious blood of the spotless lamb of God that was shed on the cross for our sins was complete and sufficient to redeem and justify all in the family of God. Does that make sense? That, the, 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 the evidence that what Jesus Christ did it was sufficient is proven 
by the faith that he reveals as we walk through trials in this life and then he glorifies us together with his son in the end. There, there are some neat verses in the Bible. I call these the overcomer verses. We're going to take a little rabbit trail here and I'm going to stick with my notes so I don't go too far off this rabbit trail. In 1 John 5, John says this. He says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, all right? So the overcomers are those who have faith and the overcomers are all those who have faith are overcomers. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is cool. The ones who overcome the world are those who believe that Jesus is the son of God. The ones who overcome the world are those who have faith. The ones who overcome the world are those who are born of God. So all those who are born of God, all those who have faith, and all those who believe in Jesus Christ will overcome the world. This is what our Father does. And if you flip to Revelation, you don't have to write this down. They're just going to fly up here on the, the screen. Revelation is Jesus Christ talking to the overcomers. Through the churches. We just studied this, right? Joel came up here and talked about the churches in Revelation. But look at what he says at the end of all these letters to the churches. In Revelation 2, 7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 2, 11, for he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. In 17, for him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. In in verses 26 and 27, for he who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, And he he says, uh, just as I receive authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. In Revelation 3, 5, for him who overcomes, he will be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In Revelation 3.12, he says, For he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God. I will write on him the name of the city of my God. I will write on him the name of New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name, Christ says. And then in Revelation 3.21, he says, For him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is, this is big stuff. I don't even know what some of that stuff means. I don't think any of us have figured out exactly what some of those things mean. But we do know this, that these are immutable promises of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for all of those who have proven, tested faith, who believe in him, who are born again, who overcome this world. So think about this. This is crazy. Our Father knows your new name. He knows what you look like, perfectly glorified. He knows the name, the the new name of his son, Jesus Christ, which will be written on us. What we will be when we are with him. And every circumstance in our life is part of the revelation of that faith that faith that he's already placed in us, the faith that will cause us to overcome, the faith that he will use to transform us into the image of his son, the faith that guarantees that we are these things. So every trial and every test in your life will prove more and more and more and more what you actually are and what he is doing in us. And he will perfect it on the day of Christ. And we will be honored and glorified together with his son. And his son will receive all the honor, glory, and praise for all that he's done in us. Our proven faith will result in the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Do you see the power and authority he has? All of these things are guarantees because he is the one that has the ability and the power to accomplish these things. He snatches all of the children of God out of the hands of Satan during this present age. And he takes dead, rebellious sinners and breathes life into them. He ransoms the slaves of sin with the blood of his own son, with his own blood. And he cleanses and purifies every single one of them. He sets all of them apart as his own holy chosen possession. He adopts all of them into his family and makes them his own beloved children. He raises them all together with his son in the same likeness that we saw Christ raised. All the children of God will rise with him and walk with him into his kingdom. He seats his children with himself in the heavenly places. Jesus Christ intercedes right now for all the children of God and he sends his spirit to dwell within us, to be here with us, to walk us through these things and he will open our graves. He will resurrect our physical bodies. He will recreate us in glorified, perfected bodies and lead us into the eternal dwelling place of Jesus Christ on this earth with himself, fully sanctified and fully glorified. Glorified. That's why you go through trials. Isn't that awesome? That is a great thing. Why are you distressed by various trials? Because of this. Why are you walking through this? Because he's doing this. Why is the Lord allowing you to be perplexed? Because he wants you to trust him. He's doing this. Our perfection and our exaltation will result in his own magnificent glorification for all eternity as he has proven without a doubt his worth and his authority and his power, his dominion, his kindness and mercy and grace and love. And that is what he is proving every single time we suffer and run back to him. We suffer and become a little more like him. We suffer and we begin to trust him more than we trust our own eyes. We suffer And we replace our wrong thoughts with his right thoughts. We replace our sinful habits with his holy character. That's what he's doing. And he will be magnified and glorified for all of this. And that is why we have trouble in life. That is what our father is doing. That is why we suffer. And that is why we fight temptation and sin. And that is why we are distressed through various trials for our own good and for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the joy of trials. That is the joy of trials. And that is why Christians rejoice in trials. We don't rejoice in trials because they'll be over at some point. Even an unbeliever understands that. And we don't rejoice in trials just because, well, everyone else is suffering and this is just my part. And we don't rejoice in trials because we're just trying to ignore them or we're apathetic about them. We rejoice in trials because we know what our Father is doing without a shadow of a doubt. So every time we suffer, we know for sure he's making me into the image of Christ and he's gonna glorify me together with his son and this is all for the glory of Jesus Christ and my own good. It doesn't mean it won't hurt. It doesn't mean you won't be distressed. It doesn't mean that it won't be hard. It doesn't mean that you won't know the end. But it does mean that he will be faithful to complete what he says he is doing, no matter what. So trust him. Trust what he says. Look at the joy of trials, verses eight and nine here. And we're just gonna read these and, 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 uh, and, and we'll end here soon. He says, and though you've not seen him, you love him. I think about that. These, these people receiving this letter, they didn't get to see Christ in bodily form like Peter did. Neither have you. But trials, every child of God knows the trials bring you closer to him, right? 
And as you watch him walk you through these things, your love for Jesus Christ grows. Even though you're not looking at him face to face. Even though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. There's another thing trials do, right? It causes us to believe what he says. I have a lot of bad theology. I have a lot of misunderstanding of the nature and character of God. And I know you do too. Because none of us know him perfectly. And we all have misunderstandings and misconceptions. But as I suffer and as I walk through trials, and as I watch his word prove itself more and more, I see more and more that he is trustworthy. He never exaggerates. He always does what he says he's going to do. He speaks with perfection. So trials cause us to believe him, to trust him. He says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. You can't express the joy that you receive as you walk through trouble in this life and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the joy of trials. Knowing our Father is in control, knowing what he's doing in our life, trials intensify our love for Christ, increase our trust in Christ, escalate our desire to be with Christ, and they keep our affections and our minds focused on Christ. Because everything else distracts us from him, right? Trials increase our faith. They increase our belief. They increase our trust in his word in his promises, in his character, in his perfect will and ways. Trials increase our longing for him, our longing for his return, our longing for our salvation from this present world, our longing for that permanent reconciliation that we will have when we see him face to face and we know him like he knows us in a way that we cannot comprehend right now. Trials produce inexpressible joy for the children of God. If, you, if your desire is to see Jesus Christ face to face, to be with him forever, to be cleansed of your sin, to be justified, to be sanctified, to be glorified together with him, if you want to be perfect and complete like his son, if you want to bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus Christ and to God your father, if you want to be eternally freed from death and the power of sin which reigns in this present age, then you must have faith. And tested, proven, enduring, grace-given faith is proven through suffering and trials. And that is why we rejoice. I'm going to read a, a, just a, a bunch of verses in a row here real quick at the very end. And I just want you to look at what the, this is just a little snippet of what the New Testament says about trials. Mostly from the mouth of Paul and a little bit from John and Peter. But think about this, guys. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Do not be disturbed by these afflictions, for you know that we have been destined for this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The sufferings, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight 
of glory, far beyond all comparison. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And in this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Let's pray. Father, we just so thankful and grateful that we are in the hands of a father that knows us. Lord, help us to understand more and more your perfect will and your ways, your loving nature and character that that cares for all of your children with perfect affection. Father, help us to trust you even when we cannot understand what is happening around us or to us. Help us to run to you when we are worried or we need comfort or we feel alone and dejected. Father, help us to trust what what your word says to listen to your truth. To know that you are using suffering and trials, tribulations, persecution, pain, sickness, disease, and even death in the lives of all of your children to make them into the image of your son and to bring them to yourself. Father, we know we will face suffering in this life and we know that there's much more suffering to come the longer we live on this earth. But Lord, we pray that through that you would do your gracious work and cause us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. We know that you know the new name of all of your children and you have written the name of your son on all of us, the name of your kingdom and your own name. We know that no one takes from the hands of God we know that no one can snatch us out of the hands of Christ. We know that nothing will separate us from your love. Father, we are the ones that don't believe that. But we do believe you. And we pray, help our unbelief. Help us to trust you, Father. You are a wonderful, merciful, gracious, mighty, powerful, sovereign, awesome Father. And we ask you to do anything, anything in our lives to make us more like you. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen.